The Daily Rios Digest, Volume 2, Saturday, May 20th, 2023. Rios, thank you. Hey everybody, this is your host Peter with the 46th Digest of this second volume covering Monday, May 15th through Friday, May 19th, 2023. Movie Monday. A few quick thoughts on three movies that I was looking forward to, finally sat down to watch. We're talking about Scream Number 6, Ant-Man and Wasp Quantumania, and Cocaine Bear. That's right, Cocaine Bear. My initial thoughts on all three, I'm glad I didn't go to the movie theater to watch them. And that might be a little harsh, but yeah, I watched them all on streaming, and I don't know if going to the movie theater would have made the experience any better. Let's start with Cocaine Bear, which I saw on Peacock. I was really looking forward to this, and it was probably the one that I wound up being the most disappointed with out of the three. It just wasn't as funny when you moved from how amazing the trailer was and how it was hyped up with the trailer, and then when you expanded into a larger movie... Yeah, it just didn't work for me, and I found myself waiting for it to rev up to that same energy that the trailer had, and about midway through, I thought, maybe I should take a break. Maybe I wasn't watching it at the right time, I was getting bored, Uh, it just didn't seem to get there fast enough for me, and then when it did... Uh, you know, there were some moments that I liked, some scenes that I thought, okay, there it is. That's what I felt like in the trailer. But overall, now it really doesn't go deep into the campiness of um, what I was hoping for. It was directed by Elizabeth Banks. I felt like it wasn't really cleanly directed. There were either boring camera shots or way too much quick editing that you can always tell, oh yeah, this feels like an amateur director. Uh, You know, I grew up with very silly movies in the 80s. I love campy movies. One of my top five favorite movies is Better Off Dead. I enjoy uh, impossible situations, over-the-top acting, stupid one-liners, Uh, All the way through to, I remember laughing my head off sometime maybe within the past five, six, seven years at a stupid movie called Zombievers and just how insane it was. This one, I don't know. I mean, I know that it's kind of cut from that same cloth. It just didn't really get there. Probably the moments where it got there, anytime the bear actually was going after the coke, and was huffing it off of, like, you know, a severed leg, you know? That was funny. Um, he the, the bear turns out to be a girl bear, and it has cubs, and they also get high on the coke. Some of that was insane. It just, ah, uh, you know, the level where it could have gone, it might have been better under the hands of someone a little more experienced, whether that was in the writing team or the directing and editing and cinematography. I don't know. It just... There wasn't that uh, zany comedic brilliance that I was looking for. Maybe this is a movie you might want to watch in a party setting, in a group setting, where you're not really paying a lot of attention, but you're having fun. Maybe it's more fun in an altered state of being. (laughs) Not that I'm condoning or judging, but you never know. Okay, let's move on. Scream 6. This was the most anticipated of the three. I adored Scream 5. I loved the whole passing of the torch, of the legacy, the callbacks, the continuation of the very meta uh, meta themes that go on when you watch a Scream movie. This one, while I appreciated the different backdrop of New York, and I did like the ways the movie subverted a few of its own tropes, right? Like it didn't get as meta as some of the other previous installments. I I, I did appreciate that. Ultimately, by the end, 
I think my excitement was really high and then as I as I got closer and closer and then when I got the eventual reveal yeah that's when I was like oh that's not what I want you know this movie takes place uh, a year later from season from uh, you know scream number five Tara played by Jenna Ortega is in college Sam played by Melissa Barrera is basically watching her every move She's her older sister. And the ghost face killer has upped his methodology. Um, you know, he's in a, in a much different setting. So he gets to play within the larger framework of New York City and what that means in terms of his killings. Um, there's also this tracing back through the legacy of all the ghost face killers, which I guess in a way that is the meta angle to it. And I did enjoy that. There were some surprise character additions, you know, some people showing up from other movies, some long-standing characters that die. I I wish some of the deaths had more to do with the setting. Um, and I don't mean in terms of the location. Like, we got some alleyways, we got some subway that create, we got a subway scene that created some good tension. I mean actually using the environment to kill someone, not just stab or shoot them, but like in the very first scream where the one girl is trying to escape out of a garage door opening and then he just you know turns it on and it lifts up and it decapitates her like things like that i think i wanted more of that some smarter ways to kill off the 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 victims perhaps one of the deaths i quote unquote deaths i can't believe the character comes back from that's just crazy now, about the reveal, I had initially thought the reveal of the killer was going to go one way. It went a totally different way. And I think that's what put the, the disappointment in it for me. Because without giving it away, the reveal fell flat for me. Mostly because I don't really care about the killers or their motivation. And, um, you know, you don't have to, but... When it was revealed, I was like, oh, that's the boring choice. That's the safe choice, you know? There could have been so many more interesting ways that you could connect to Sam and what she's going through because of her own family legacy. And the way they did this, nah, it just didn't work. I probably have to watch it again to see where it really holds up in relation to some of the other sequels. Um, because for the most part... I've enjoyed every single one, you know, um, and there certainly is something about Sam and her family legacy that makes it fun to watch her when she slips into what that is, again, without giving it away. She handles these situations differently because she is not Sydney, right? She comes from her own sort of trauma and family legacy. So, yeah, uh, decent, decent enough to watch. Um, but you know, not, not what I was hoping for. And then we get to Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantumania. Oh boy. Um, this was, um, mm, <laughs> it's, it's not that it was messy. It just was aimless. I think, um, I did like that it opens up and they go right into the action, right? Like we don't spend too much time on earth before we are into the quantum verse. Okay, that's great. We also get right into the whole father-daughter connection. Okay, that's fine. I think some of the third act was probably better for me than everything leading up to it. Um, but again, this was another one that I think the trailer had this kind of like epic quality to it. And then when we got to this, it's like, nope, it's still that same old Marvel formula, you know. I knew once they got into the quantum verse, all of the characters that they were going to meet were going to be silly. I think I even mentioned this when I talked about the trailer. I was hoping that they weren't going to go into the whole Guardians of the Galaxy mold, and they did. That's exactly what they did. Silly situations, silly names, silly one-liners characters with personalities that come out of like a low-budget Pixar movie and I just know seeing trailer like seeing the trailer from the Marvels 
that's probably what we're going to get with those alien beings too, right? Because for some reason, the entire galaxy has to be stupid in the Marvel Universe, and I just don't understand that. The Bill Murray cameo was a total waste. And, you know, they tried to give some backstory for Janet, and they did... But did we really learn anything else? Like, does I don't know what we gain from any of that. Um, I don't know if it'll play out in the larger landscape of these movies. Uh, none of the other characters get any kind of journey, like Hank or Hope. Uh, Cassie gets a journey, uh, but then it's bungled up by jokes and, and very low stakes. Like, her learning her abilities have, has very low stakes. And, you know... Catherine Newton is fine. Um, I don't know. I feel like they could have done more with training her in this environment, uh, really training her, right? There's a whole war going on, and they just use the war as humor and the training as humor. And again, your movie can be funny, but not everything has to be comedy. That's what I, uh, I... I just don't understand it. And... You know, you can go back to Ant-Man 1 and there was some development with Scott, right? Like, I feel like there was some development there. He's hanging around the Avengers. We get Ant-Man 2 and it's like he's right back to his his usual shtick in this movie and it just gets boring, right? The whole Paul Rudd as a goofy white dude does not, for, for some of us, it's not charming anymore, right? Um, and... With the uh, whole plot of this quantum verse, and it's and it's basically a heist. You know what Kang wants Ant Man to do? It could be seen as a heist, just like the first movie, and yet it wasn't there. It it just you know a heist movie in the quantum verse could have been fun, right? That could have been a lot of fun. In fact, the one moment where Scott uses all of his duplicates as the way ants would that's awesome like give me more of that stuff like that to me is creative not just that one scene right even the kang stuff felt felt momentary uh they're dripping this character into the marvel universe uh i'm not even certain i know what his ultimate goal is other than people are getting dangerously close to learning what the multiverse is perhaps that perhaps it's a a war about knowledge? I don't know. Um, well, then again, all the stuff going on with Jonathan Majors in his private life, I don't know what Marvel's reactions, reaction is going to be just yet, and I don't know how that will change their plan. Uh, the last fight between Kang and Lang, that was fun, that was good, that had some stakes. Don't get me started on MODOK. Um, the post-credit scenes were fine. Uh, because of what's going on with Jonathan Majors, I almost feel like the post-credit scenes feel like what they did in Black Adam. It's like, okay, is this really going to matter anymore in terms of the character? Certainly in terms of the actor, you know? Hmm. I don't know. So, yeah, that's really it. And, and when I was talking about Ant-Man on Twitter, I think I summed it up with, you win some, you lose some. That's how I feel about all of these movies more or less, uh, here on Movie Monday. Timeline Trivia Tuesday. The anniversaries, the first issues, the characters and creators all celebrating important dates throughout May, along with trivia questions for each block to test your comic book knowledge, we're going back 10 years, 20, 30, 40, 50, and 60 years ago for the month of May. You might be listening to this in June, but hey, you can always celebrate whenever. So we start May of 2013, 10 years ago. Marvel was still going on with their Marvel Now thematic line, and we had Iron Man number 9, which was the secret origin of Tony Stark revealed by Kieran Gillen and Dale Eaglesham. During this time, he was off in space, sometimes with the Guardians of the Galaxy, and eventually it was revealed that Tony was adopted 
and had an older brother who was the actual biological son of the Starks. And that older son was known as Arno. There was some Cree manipulation going on. There's an armor that can battle the Celestials. And eventually, you know, this all gets rebooted and retconned uh, as later writers tried to make sense of it all. From Image Comics, The Bounce Number 1, which would last 12 issues by Joe Casey and David Messina. Jasper Jenkins is the ultimate slacker superhero for the 21st century. This was part of their Man of Action imprint, and it was basically What If Bouncing Boy had his own series but was a pothead. And I remember really liking that first issue at the time. Ten years ago, we have Comic Book Creator Number 1 by Tomorrow's Publishing, this uh, featured an interview with Alex Ross and Kurt Busiek. Uh, this was a spinoff of what they used to do, which was comic book artist. And they had a second volume that ran through Top Shelf. And then when they decided to redo this magazine, they came up with comic book creator. So they could open it up to writers and artists and other people. Uh, and this is edited, well, at least it was at the time, I don't know if it still is, by John B. Cook. Over at DC, we were getting some other titles within the New 52, such as Green Team, Teen Trillionaires, The Movement. We had Green Lantern number 20, which was the Wrath of the First Lantern finale, and it was also the final issue of the Jeff Johns era that began way back in Green Lantern Rebirth uh, in 2004. So your question for May of 2013 comes from another New 52 title, Earth 2, Annual Number 1 specifically, which was the first appearance of Thomas Wayne as Batman after picking up the mantle from his son Bruce who was killed in battle with Darkseid on Earth 2. Earth 2 had about 12 issues to this point, and this is not the Thomas Wayne as Batman uh, that we got from Flashpoint, right? We, don't, we can't confuse the two. This is, this is a different one, right? Um, this is one that became Batman after his son was Batman, whereas I believe the Flashpoint Batman, Bruce was killed, and Thomas Wayne became Batman. So your question... Who was the writer for this Earth 2 introduction? Let's go back 20 years to May 2003. If you're a fan of Brian Stelfreeze, there was a four-issue miniseries for Domino that kicked off with writer Joe Pruitt. Uh, not sure how it reads, but it looks fun. And I just talked about Stelfreeze for the Wednesday Comics uh, strip featuring Demon and Catwoman. A few strips ago so I thought oh this is cool I don't think I ever I don't think I remembered that this domino series had happened uh, 20 years ago we were getting some big changes within the DC universe we had the first issue of Titans Young Justice graduation day by Judd Winnick and Alejandra Garza a miniseries a three-issue miniseries that would alter the Titans and alter the Young Justice team it led to the death of Donna Troy. Uh, eventually, it would lead to, do, to two very popular series, Outsiders by Judd Winnick and Tom Rainey in June of 2003, and the Jeff Johns and Mike McCone Teen Titans book that started in July of 2003. And I will get to them in future Timeline Tuesdays. But this was really DC moving faster and faster towards a lot of great titles, and a lot of great thematic things that would lead us to identity crisis and infinite crisis. So we are, um, you know, really ramping up, which I loved that era of DC. Your question comes from Marvel this time. 20 years ago, we got uh, the first issue of The Crew spinning out of Christopher Priest's Black Panther run. It only lasted seven issues. It was very complicated, very smart, very short-lived. And it featured characters like Rhodey, War Machine, uh, Josiah X, the son of Isaiah Bradley from the Truth series, 
Junta, also from the Black Panther series, and Casper Cole, who took over the Black Panther mantle for a short period around this time. But in the Crew series, Casper Cole has a whole new identity, uh, both wrapped up into Wakanda lore, but also into the larger Marvel Universe lore. What was the name of this new identity that Casper used during the Crew? Let's go 30 years ago, May of 1993. There were some big things happening here. We have Batman 497, Nightfall Part 11, You Thought It Could Never Happen, The Breaking of the Bat, Doug Munch, Jim Aparo, Dick Giordano on inks, An Exhausted Batman, A Vengeful Bane, and then we get Cracked, The Breaking of Batman's Back. We also got the first appearance of Static, in his first full appearance by Dwayne McDuffie, Robert Washington III, John Paul Leon is your penciler. That would last 45 issues. From Image, New Titles, Bloodstrike, Brigade, although that was volume two. Uh, Deathblow graduating into his own title from a pre- previous appearance. Shaman's Tears, number one. Trencher, Tribe, that only lasted one issue. I don't know if this was like a second or third wave of books. You know, Bloodstrike and Brigade, they were cut from kind of the same cloth. Deathblow was a newish character. You know, certainly Mike Grell on Shaman's Tears, Keith Giffen on Trencher. Those were, uh, I don't know if they were super, super important, but it showed that they were trying to give other creators uh, a platform to do whatever it is they wanted to do. From Marvel UK, we had Cyberspace 3000 by Gary Russell, Steve Tappan, and company, covered by Liam Sharp. That ran for eight issues, and the first issue had a glow-in-the-dark cover featuring the characters, but also Galactus. The story was right there alongside Babylon 5 and Deep Space Nine, where there's a giant space station, and then something happens, um, and there's a mystery, perhaps with another dimension. But for me... Uh, you know, I love space stuff, and I picked it up at the time. But there was a character in it named, she was the captain, named Jennifer Cabre-Rios. So I was like, oh, well, now I have to read it. Over in the X universe, we were celebrating the first part of Fatal Attractions with X-Factor number 92 as a way to celebrate 30 years of X-Men. That particular issue was by Scott Lobdell, Joe Quesada, J.M. Uh, DeMatteis. We'll get some major X-Men moments throughout this story in upcoming months, but this was, yeah, it was a crossover, but it felt more like a, an ideological story, right? Because you have Charles and the X-Men on one side, Magneto and the Acolytes on the other, and what happens in the middle. That's what this uh, event was about. I really, really dug Fatal Attractions. And then your question comes from 2099 Unlimited Number 1, which was released 30 30 years ago in May. This was a quarterly series that lasted 10 issues because the early mid-90s, they loved quarterly issues. And we got the first appearance of Hulk 2099 by Gerard Jones and Dwayne Turner. So your question, what was the real real name and the identity of Hulk 2099. That's probably really hard. 40 years ago, May of 1983, just some really great things here. Alpha Flight number one by John Byrne, which would last 130 issues. Fantastic Four 257 was when, also by John Byrne, was when Galactus ate the Scroll Throne World. Hawkeye got the first issue of his four-issue miniseries by Mark Grunewald. Uh, This is a story where he loses his hearing, and at the end, he winds up marrying Mockingbird. Over at Comico, we have Matt Wagner's Grendel series, even though he had a previous appearance. And this only lasts three issues uh, because the company had financial woes. And then Matt Wagner would do another series, and he would sort of consider this one uh, kind of like a warm-up. Flash 324, Carrie Bates, Carmine Infantino. On the wedding day uh, to Fiona Webb, the Flash is just chasing Professor Zoom around the world. And before Zoom can kill yet another soon-to-be wife, 
he manages to grab the reverse flash, saying, not again, and he kills, breaks the neck of the reverse flash, and this will lead to <laughs> a lengthy storyline, the trial of the flash that went on and on and on, all the way up to issue 350. Your question comes from one of my favorite 80s series, Batman and the Outsiders, issue number one, dropping 40 years ago in May of 1983. Mike W. Barr, Jim Aparo, Adrian Roy, it still holds up to this day. It would last 37 issues before it would start reprinting stories from the Baxter run, and it would really only last up to issue 46. So in this first issue, Batman quits the Justice League of America when they refuse to help him to go into war-torn Markovia, where a colleague of his has been abducted. So your question, who was the colleague? All right, let's go 50 years ago, May of 1973. Mr. Miracle 15 is the first appearance of Shiloh Norman by Jack Kirby. We have Hulk 166, which was the first appearance of the being known as Zax. Shanna the She-Devil number 5, the first appearance of Necra by Steve Gerber and Ross Andrew. Supernatural Thrillers number 5, first appearance of The Living Mummy by Steve Gerber and Rick Buckler. And your question comes from Prez, first teen president from DC Comics. The first issue dropping 50 years ago in May. It only lasted four issues. There was a fifth issue that was reprinted in Cancelled Comics Cavalcade. Your question, name the crooked political boss that tried to manipulate Prez's popularity into Prez running for senator before becoming president. What was the name of that boss? And finally, 60 years ago, May of 1963, Superman 162 gave us the original Superman Red, Superman Blue imaginary story. This was by Leo Dorfman and Kurt Swan. Strange Tales 111, first appearance of Baron Mordo by Steve Ditko and Stan Lee. And your question comes from House of Secrets 61, featuring the first appearance of Eclipso, created by Bob Haney and Lee Elias. Your question, name the island where Bruce Gordon found the Black Diamond, turning him into Eclipso. All right, let's go to your answers. How did you do? Ten years ago, May of 2013, who was the writer for the Earth 2 annual featuring uh, the new Batman? That would be James Robinson. Twenty years ago, May of 2003, what code name did Casper Cole use in the crew? That would be White Tiger. Thirty years ago, May of 1993, the real identity of Hulk 2099 is John Eisenhart. 40 years ago, May of 1983, Batman quits the Justice League of America to go after Lucius Fox, who was abducted in Markovia. So Lucius Fox is your answer. 50 years ago, May of 1973, the crooked political boss in Prez is named Boss Smiley. And 60 years ago, May of 1963, the island where the Black Diamond was found is called Diablo Island. All right, let me know how you did. There you go. There's another Timeline Trivia Tuesday. Wednesday Night Fever. I'm going to give you some recommendations for this week, but before I do that, I managed to read two of DC's free comic book day 2023 offerings. I read the DC Night Terrors one-shot and also the Dawn of DC Primer, which wasn't necessarily uh, a free comic book day offering, but it was released, I think, like a week or two later. 
Dawn of DC I've been talking about for a while. That is DC's year-long initiative where they are releasing a whole bunch of new series, mini-series, and eventually it's going to lead to, I believe, uh, some kind of event or some kind of confrontation. That's what the primer is about. But I'm going to start with the DC Night Terrors offering. This is by Joshua Williamson, Chris Pacello, and Howard Porter and Company. This is a two-month event that is being released mid-schedule, mid-schedule of all the DC, Dawn of DC books, meaning that they are going to, for two months, put all of their titles on pause, or most of their titles on pause, and in place, they're going to present this uh, this event, uh, DC Night Terrors. This is very similar to what they did with Age of Apocalypse. This is very similar for DC with what they did with Convergence. And um, I'll talk a little bit more about that part of it uh, in a little bit. So the story itself um, is basically Damien is having a nightmare and he meets someone, some kind of voice that is showing him uh, the larger part of the DC universe and telling him things like, Batman and his friends might be bright and shining and loved by all on the outside, but they are all monsters on the inside. And he also says, uh, they hid something from me, and once I find it, they will pay. It made me think um, of, of maybe perhaps like Dr. Destiny, and he had, um, he had devices. He had a dream machine, he had a dream stone. There was stuff that was tied into Sandman. But this looks like this is a new character named Insomnia. And the setup for the event itself, which we will find out in the summer, uh, a body of an early Justice League of America villain is found in the Hall of Justice. And it'll take the help of Dead Man to confront this new villain named Insomnia as DC's heroes and villains battle their own worst nightmares. So if this is something that has to do with horror, something to do with dreams and nightmares, I wonder if the body that they found, they find, is going to be Dr. Destiny, and then it'll explode into all of these two-issue miniseries and a four-issue event series. And that's going to take over all of July and August. I think it's an odd timing for this kind of event, you know, Dawn of DC is just, they are slowly rolling out their titles. It's not like every title began in January or February at a new number one. And by the time they get to the summer or the end of the summer, we're at issue number six. So that's a good time to pause. You know, there's going to be some books that have only had two issues or three issues, maybe even only one issue. So I think that's weird and if it is a horror book, why didn't they just wait until October and then you could have, you know, Dawn of DC could find more of a footing. So I don't get me wrong, you know, the whole notion of replacing your entire line of books and, um, you know, for some kind of event, sure. I don't find anything wrong with that. Some people say it's a good jumping off point. It could also be a good jumping on point, or it's just a way to, you know, ease your wallet for two months. I mean, it's not like your comics are going to go away. Is it really that horrible that you don't get to read them for two months? Um, I thought I was going to read most of these on the DC app, but it turns out I did actually pre-order a few of them. I pre-ordered Titans and Nightwing and maybe one or two others. I think Ravager, um, anything Titans related. For this free comic book day offering, you're probably going to want it because of the Chris Pacello artwork. Um, it's interesting to see him within the DC universe. We see Damien. We see a double spread of Flash and Wonder Woman, Jon Stewart, the Titans, Zatanna. Um, so it's fun. It's fun to see his artwork in the DC universe. Some of it comes across a little bit like Tim Burton or Beetlejuice, which kind of surprised me. Um, and then the last two pages, two or three pages, is with Howard Porter, who is going to be one of the artists for the main book. The rest of this offering 
just shows character designs, some variant covers that we're going to see on the issues, and then a whole bunch of promotional stuff for Dawn of DC. So, you know, as far as a free book, a free offering, it's a small taste. I can't imagine you're really going to get uh, a good idea what this event is going to be like. It's just a very, it's just a prologue. It's just a small taste. Um, did I learn anything, you know, major? Probably not. Again, Chris Pacello, the artwork, that's probably the highest selling point for, uh, for this particular issue. So then we get to Dawn of DC, the primer. This is also by Joshua Williamson and artist Leandro Fernandez. And this is supposed to give us clues as to what will be the undercurrent for this new era for DC, uh, for this whole Dawn of DC. It features Amanda Waller. It features a Peacemaker, of course. And taken from the Young Justice cartoon series, we have a new Council of Light, which was teased at the end of Dark Crisis. This opens up with a caption, It's always darkest before the dawn. Again, DC hitting this you know, light-dark duality. We just saw it in, in the Night Terrors one-shot, where he talks about heroes are good, but they have monsters inside them. You could go all the way back to the Crisis. You could go to Blackest Night and Brightest Day. This is not necessarily a new theme for the DC Universe. For some reason that we're not truly given yet, Amanda Waller feels like all of this hope that the heroes are giving is actually bad for the world. And she feels like something extreme needs to happen to save the world. That the hero's message of hope is driving them into the end times. But we don't know why. We don't get any kind of idea of what she knows. Does she know that something is coming up? Is she just basing this on her own experience? Does this have anything to do with the teases that we've been getting with Brainiac? I don't know. So then she goes and makes an offer to villains because that's what she does. Even though she says in the narration, I have to think outside of the box, I'm thinking, no, when you work with villains, Amanda Waller, that is you working within your box. So I don't quite understand that. She winds up making an offer to the villains and, say, and says, I will give you full pardons if you kill a superhero. And then we get this spread, this double spread of various heroes throughout the DC Universe, and they all have targets on their heads. And I just think this is weird. I don't get, I don't get what the end game he is here. Why would she, why does she want to kill the heroes? What does she know? Of course she's using the villains, but they're all, you know, B, C, E, F list villains. You know, Black Spider, Trigger Twins, Bug-Eyed Bandit. Uh, Lady Vic, Trident, there's a lot of Nightwing and, and Titans, Crazy Quilt, Hellhound, you know, why are you going after these low-budge villains, right? Meanwhile, Peacemaker and the new character Peace Wrecker and a character named Gunsmith have made their way to Lazarus, the Lazarus Island, which is now quarantined, and they find on the island the Helmet of Hate. Not the Helmet of Fate, but the Helmet of Hate. This is new, I think. This is a new twist on, you know, whatever it is they're doing here. Uh, that's probably the most interesting to come out of the entire one-shot. And uh, we'll see how all of this, you know, manages to play out throughout the larger DC universe. And I think some of it has already played out, for instance, in um, Titans number one. So when Amanda is talking to the villains, one of the villains steps up to her and says, look, I know your game. When people work with you, people die. She manages to disarm him and shoots him in the head and kills him, which I was quite surprised by. The character is Codename Assassin from the old First Issue special series. And he had shown up a little bit during James Robinson's run on the Superman titles. And I'm assuming that he is in Tom King's current series with Danger Street. Now, I'm fairly certain they're probably two different continuities, or one is in continuity and one is not. It just felt like a weird choice. Why are you using Codename Assassin? If he is in Danger Street and is going to be in all of those 12 issues, 
why would you use that character? That just doesn't make sense. Like, don't, you're confusing readers, right? If, if he is playing out in both books. So, yeah, it's, it's interesting. It's, it's the kind of um, story that I do like because it's going to set up a whole theme for the DC, larger DC universe. But I have a lot of questions and I don't know, I don't know how this one is going to play out. Like, it feels like, didn't we already kind of go through something like this already multiple times? And uh, I guess we'll, I guess we'll see. So those are your two free comic book, well, those are your two free offerings from DC Comics in the past uh, couple weeks in May. So let's go to the recommendations for the week of May 17th. Starting with Image Comics, 20th Century Men Trade Paperback for $24.99, collecting the six-issue series. There are two things that have been in the air in the past couple years with comics. One of them, the multiverses, of course. But also this meta-commentary about comic books. If you think of something like Crossover and apparently 20th Century Men, which is some kind of... Uh, mix between history, politics, comic book mythology, and something else. So that has me real interested to read that series. From Seven Stories Press, we have Going Remote, A Teacher's Journey Hardcover by Adam Bessie and Peter Glanting for $18.95. Basically, an English professor and graphic essayist's historical account and documentation and, you know, graphic memoir of what it was like to teach during the pandemic, which I certainly was part of, right? I don't remember how much of I talk, how much I talked about this during 2020, uh, you know, but I was teaching and then was told by my university, okay, go home and teach. And we all were like, okay, thank you for all your help. And there, there was this weird, the, the graphic novel talks about, um, you know, having to deal with what the students were dealing with and not only mental health issues, but their needs as they were learning from home and the equality or lack of equality between how some parents were really able to help their students um, make this change while they were at home. And other students were like, yeah, I'm just learning in my bedroom. And that was very strange and it took a lot and you had to be very open about allowing students to have their moment and have their time. And, um, and the next thing you know, you know, I was like part of uh, a group of teachers that they were like, okay, we're going to try this out and go back. And then the next semester after that, everybody came back, but I felt like a guinea pig in many ways. And then eventually, you know, wound up leaving the school because even through all of that, even through all my 11 years of teaching and everything we had to go through with COVID, God forbid they ask me uh, for any input when they were going to create a new program uh, post-COVID, you know, and then I was finally like, okay, I'm I'm done with this school, you know, but I'm not bitter. Anyway, um, let's go back to the recommendations. IDW, Star Trek The Motion Picture Echoes number one a new mini-series detailing never-before-seen adventures with Captain Kirk and the crew of the USS Enterprise dealing with, you guessed it, doppelgangers from an alternate reality. $4.99. Mark Guggenheim, Oleg Chudikov. Uh, Yeah, you know, what can you say? It sort of, as it says, it takes place during the motion motion picture era, uh, but it will have some stuff to do, I assume, with multiverse stuff. From Marvel, a new Avengers number one, since we are celebrating 60 years of Avengers. This one by Jed McKay, C.F. Villa, Stuart Eminen on covers, $4.99, you know, featuring the villain Terminus and a new danger that the Avengers know all too well and one that comes to them in the most dangerous of guises, that of a friend. Tomorrow's Publishing, we have Comic Book Creator number 30, featuring the work of Michael Cho for $10.95. From DC, Dawn of DC, we have Batman Brave and the Bold number one, The Vigil number one of six, Cyborg one of six, and Titans number one. Brave and the Bold has a lead story, it's an anthology book, 
a lead story with Tom King and Mitch Gerrids. Also, Dan Mora is writing uh, one of the stories, so that should be cool. Uh, the Vigil is by Ram V and artist Lalit Kumar Sharma, continuing their story from Lazarus Planet. And then, of course, Cyborg and Titans, which no doubt I will dig into those in a future Tower episode. There you go, your recommendations for the week of May 17th. Let's drop some podcasting talk here on this Thursday segment. This week I listened to a new-to-me ensemble comic book podcast that's been around for a while. It has uh, hundreds of episodes to date. It was a totally good discussion, uh, up-to-date topics. I felt like I was learning things and the hosts were knowledgeable. It was a, a comic book podcast, as I said. Um, maybe not all the hosts were as engaging as the point person, but overall, I was really glad I listened, and I'm adding it to my rotation of podcasts, and I will definitely continue on. The podcast, I believe, is recorded over Zoom or Skype or something like that, and there were moments where the use of that app, because it's an ensemble podcast, caused technical issues that made me think, okay, you know what? I kind of want to address this. I want to address this on one of these Daily Rio segments. For anyone else who either uses these apps or is part of an ensemble podcast, and maybe it will help you figure out some things and clean up your end product. Because, you know, look, pod class of 2005 here, right? I've been part of a major ensemble comic book podcast for many, 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 many years. And we've had four, five, seven, sometimes eight people in a room, right? So even if um, even if along the way we also, you know, it's not like we used the best technology, um, but we had an understanding, I think, a, a good understanding at times of what it means to be an ensemble podcast. And you add that plus my years of directing and theater experience and, you know, I'm not bragging. I kind of know what I'm talking about when it comes to being an active listener and um, making sure things are clear for a a larger audience, you know, because you can't always rely on one of the things about CGS. Most of our voices were very different from each other, you know, so that was a, a plus. But sometimes I hear some ensemble podcasts and I can't really tell voices apart right away. Um, you know, back when we were doing CGS in the early days, we didn't have hundreds of shows to compare to or to learn from. I mean, we were winging it and we just learned along the way. And, you know, again, I'm not the most tech savvy uh, person when it comes to podcasts, but there are some do's and don'ts. And I think when a show has too many don't, don'ts, that's that that's a problem. Sometimes I can't listen anymore because it's like they're not trying to actively address those situations. And it just makes for not a fun experience listening to them. So for this discussion, I'm talking about ensemble shows with hosts of three or more, probably four or more because it usually happens only with larger groups. And I'm focusing on the use of Skype and Zoom and how without proper attention, it can lead to moments where hosts just don't hear each other or they have to repeat and they have to ask someone to repeat and there are awkward pauses, right? Uh, And again, I'm freely admit that there are times with uh, the most recent CGS recordings, some of that goes on as well. But I'll address that. So so let's talk the technology. If you are recording virtually and you have hosts in different locations, every host must, must, must have on headphones. It's the only way to properly hear everyone on the call. You know, you could probably also say, all right, everyone should also have mics 
even the little earbud mics that I still use, you know. But I find that this issue really happens because someone is not wearing a headphone. The problem is, if you are not listening to everybody else, you know, your sound through headphones, your sound is coming out of your recording device. So it's struggling to make sense of all of those voices coming out of one place. And then if, if you're trying to talk into that recording device without a mic, without headphones, you know, that's where that traffic comes in. There's just too much traffic going in and out. So you get some dips in sound, one voice flattens out all the others, or you can't hear what the person says, it gets choppy, right? There's just too much going on. That's why, first of all, you need headphones so you can hear everything. You're not trying to rely on your speakers of your recording device. And yes, maybe you do need a mic too, whatever kind of mic that is, as cheap as it is, so that your voice can get filtered through, right? It gets choppy. People say, what did you say? They have to repeat. There's drowned out voices. It's just too much. It's just really too much. Now, if you're like me and you're an editing beast, these moments can be corrected to a point. So for the Daily Rios and for the current CGS episodes that I participate in, I use Zoom. And on Zoom, every person on the call can be recorded on their own track. So I can go in individually and I can do things like, uh, you know, I can bump up voices that are quieter. I can match all our volumes to the best of my ability. I can move things around, right? I try to make the conversation as clear as possible. If someone is taking the lead, I can lower the other voices who are just reacting. If everybody is reacting, I can isolate which ones I want to hear more than others. You know, maybe there's a repeat, so we don't need both of them. I can cut things. I can move them around. Um... I can make it so that you hear what you need to hear, right? And again, all of this would would be helped if everybody could hear what is going on. It's the reason why Howard Stern used to yell at people to put their headphones on. First of all, they have to hear Robin, but also it's so you hear everybody and you can react to everybody and you don't get caught up in this whole like, what? What did somebody say? Um, you know, again, as I said, I am low tech. I do very little to level or compress a podcast, you know, but I will definitely add some bass. I will try to bring some voices forward if they feel like they're distance, distant, because sometimes if you use those headphones that have mics right on the headphone, I find that they make voices very thin. So I try to give them a little bit more fullness to them. Um, I make adjustments just to make the sound a little better so that you, the listeners, can hear it, right? My own solo podcast, if you hear a podcast from this month and then you go listen to a previous month and then a previous year, the sound quality, always different. But when it comes to ensemble podcasts, I try to make sure that we, at the very least, are on the same level, even if there isn't any kind of like compression going on or anything like that. Truthfully, it doesn't take very long, but I'm well aware that there are some people who just don't want to go through all that. Fair enough. But that's when you have to pay attention to, okay, stop talking over each other. That's the next thing I want to talk about. Um, Make sure people have headphones on, and that might help solve some of the issues. So trust me when I say headphones will help avoid all those awkward moments. All right. Secondly, you're an ensemble podcast. There's a larger discussion that we could talk about, you know, oh, well, I don't want to be a professional show versus I want to just be an amateur podcast. I just want to get together with friends and hit record. Okay, fine. I get that. That's all good. But again, it is podcasting. If you can't hear it, if a listener can't hear it, what's the point, right? If they can't hear your conversation, then what's the point? So as I mentioned before, another danger with virtual group recordings is when people overlap their discussion, Uh, especially in those moments when everyone is reacting with short responses or laughter or acknowledgements, you know. Um, Most ensemble shows will learn over time 
that when there is a lead person, when one person is running this conversation or they have, quote unquote, the mic or they have the floor, right? I'm sure you've heard that before, right? You have the floor. Um, They know that, okay, that person is in the lead and they know how to adjust their conversation so it doesn't become uh, too much of of a conflict, right? When someone is in the lead, learn how to back off from your mic just a little bit or limit your interjections, you know? If you're using a freestanding mic, it's easy to do. Just sit back. You can still say things, the the mic will pick you up, but you won't be on the same level as that point person. If you're using a headset mic or an earbud mic, just move your mouth away from it for a little bit, you know? Um, If all you're doing is the vocal equivalent of nodding your head in agreement, do you really need to be on the same level as the main voice? No. And do, first and secondly, do you need to hear that? No, you don't, you know. Again, I'll go back to the Stern show because that's really the only example that I had in those early days of podcasting. You can hear in their discussions when someone is the main voice and when the others are in the background. And that's purposeful, right? He wanted that to be Um, so that you didn't get distracted. It's the reason why he hated and the reason why I hated zoo shows, zoo crew shows, um, uh, where zoo morning shows where everybody is on the same level and it's just people yammering and they, they're talking over each other and it's just, it's too much. There's no dynamic to it, right? If that's the quality I'm getting from your podcast, I, I struggle to listen to it, you know? Now, obviously when you're in person, this is easy to do, right? When we would do those early CGS recordings at Brian's house or in the studio, you can do that. You can sit back from the mic and you don't have to be right on top of it. You could still hear interjections and you could still hear people, but you're not taking away from whoever is speaking, especially in interviews, you know? And I know there's a thing of like, oh, you know, I want to keep saying, uh-huh, yeah, uh-huh, because you want the other person to know that you're there, But if you're on Zoom and you're on video, they know you're there. Like, you don't need to do that, right? Like, that's such, that's kind of, um, I know it's an interview thing, but I think it's a very amateur interview thing, even though I've done it too in the past. But I've learned that over the time, just let the person speak. You know when they really want uh, a reaction and you know that you're probably just doing it to, to do it, you know? So share the floor, share the mic. And I don't mean that you have to do this and interrupt the natural feel of a discussion, right? You know me, I hate when when conversations are, this person speaks for two minutes, then the next person speaks for three minutes, then the next person speaks for one minute. No, 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 no. Make it free flowing, interject, come in and out. But remember, if there's a point person, you gotta remember your listeners. They wanna hear that person. And if you're cutting in, really cut in, but if it's just one voice over than the other as they're both trying to speak, nah, that's too confusing. Um, again, I can clean these things up in editing. You know, I I am the king of deleting odd tangents, things that I go off on. Um, if somebody says something and somebody repeats it, you know, you don't need both of those. Uh, you can cut, cut, cut. You can edit, 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 bring up voices, bring up reactions, move things around. It doesn't change the conversation. It's just those little moments need to be addressed because they affect listenership. Um, if you're not editing and, uh, you know, you are noticing that these things are happening, you got to just kind of shut up. You just got to know when to jump in, when not to talk. Learn that it's totally okay for a person to talk without you going, uh-huh, yeah, right, every five minutes, right? Especially if you're on Zoom. That was the thing when I was listening to that podcast, uh, you know, someone had some really good points and then someone would jump in and then that point would fade away. And I'm like, oh no, go back to that. And then most times they would. But that's the kind of thing I mean. It It is actually interrupting the flow of your conversation because someone's making like an offhand joke or whatever and it really doesn't add anything to the larger conversation so in the end it is all about first of all can you hear each other in the headphones and can the audience hear you can they hear your ensemble can they hear your podcasting trust me 
your show will be better for it. The Star Heart. The power behind the lantern. Not even the Guardians on Oa, creators of the Green Lantern Corps, fully understand its magic. But there is no doubt. It is a weapon against evil, against fear, against tyranny and destruction. For I truly believe no one is beyond redemption. That is why I will always fight, why I am and will always be a Green Lantern. Let's close out this digest with some comic news. I seem to be doing this a lot on a Friday, but that's okay. Uh, first off, Len Kaminsky, a writer that you might know from Iron Man, Marvel Comics Presents, Ghost Rider 2099, War Machine, Fate, Bloodshot, Scare Tactics, and, and many others, has had a GoFundMe started because uh, he had an accident and he is left without the use of his legs he is in a care facility that he feels is not giving him the proper quality. And if you know anything about care facilities, you know, they go right in and they take your savings and they take your money. And he lost his apartment. He just turned 60 and he feels like I am not getting the proper care here. So a GoFundMe was started for him um, from friends and they are $5,000 away from their goal which is great. And all of the funds are going to be used to get him back into his own proper private home and to get him some proper care and some proper rehabilitation. Um, as always, if these creators have given you some enjoyment over the years, I feel like a few bucks can go a long, long, long way. So the GoFundMe is Help Save Len Kaminsky, and you can do a search and you can find that. Uh, over at DC Comics, we are still continuing on with some Dawn of DC stuff, but also an expansion of the new Golden Age corner of the DCU, which was spearheaded by the new JSA series and also the Stargirl Lost Children miniseries. All this um, by Jeff Johns. So we're getting three new six-issue miniseries. Green Lantern, Flash, and Sandman featuring the Golden Age versions of these characters. So we got Alan Scott, the Green Lantern by Tim Sheridan and, and Cian Torme, where they revisit and recontextualize the origins of the first Green Lantern, as well as giving us the origin of the Golden Age Red Lantern, which was introduced in that new Golden Age one-shot. Um, we're going to get a first look of Alan Scott Green Lantern in the DC Pride Through the Years one-shot, available June 13th. For The Flash, this features Jay Garrick, and this will be by Jeremy Adams and Diego Olortegua. This is Jay reuniting with his long-lost daughter, Judy, the Boom. And then Wesley Dodds, The Sandman by Rob, Rob Venditti and Riley Rossmo. After World War I, Wesley sought to create a sleeping gas that would allow for humane warfare. During his research, he recorded all of his attempts in his science journal. Well, now that journal has been stolen, and he must find the culprit and stop them before his deadly misinventions fall into the arsenals of the nations threatening to pull the United States into the next world war. They liken this to almost an Oppenheimer-type story. And then eventually all three of these miniseries will tie back into the ongoing JSA narrative. We also learned that in Wonder Woman 800, we will see the first appearance of a character known as Trinity, who is Wonder Woman's daughter. What? Yep, that's right. Wonder Woman is getting a daughter. This was dropped by Tom King on Twitter and elsewhere, along with Daniel Samper and his designs of the character. She's got Diana's tiara, uh, possibly auburn hair, which might be a clue to her, to who her dad is. And she has three lassos. I'm assuming Wonder Woman's, Wonder Girl's, and Donna's. Uh, this is a way to add to the Super Sons concept, 
So, you know, Batman has Damien, uh, Superman has John, and now Wonder Woman has Trinity. But she is the daughter 20 years in the future. We're meeting her 20 years in the future. So Tom King describes her as someone who could reflect the greatness of Wonder Woman and still show a next possible step for the ideals embodied in that very impactful and very unique hero. And maybe more important than all of that is that John and Damien are so great together. Uh, For Trinity, we wanted someone who could play in that same sandbox, who could add to that chemistry. Now, I think the really interesting thing about setting her um, story 20 years in the future is that you're dealing with comic book time, right? And there, we're getting in the new Wonder Woman book, and that's going to be part of that story. But since she's 20 years in the, in the future, we that could take forever to reach because of comic book time, right? We may never learn who the mist, who the father is, right? Maybe that's part of the mystery. This could continue for years. It's not like she's not. It's not like Wonder Woman is going to suddenly get pregnant in Wonder Woman number one, right? If that's even how they're going to do this, she could. We could read stories about her in the future, or she could come back to the present. But we don't ever have to know what the true story is behind it all. Because we may never get there. She could say, oh yeah, I am your daughter and I am 20 years old. And Wonder Woman's doing the math. It's like, oh my God, you know, that means I'm going to get pregnant in the next year. Well, that next year could stretch for five, 10 years or not at all, right? It could never get touched on. And it could just be that she is the main official Wonder Woman of the future or daughter of Wonder Woman for DC Comics, right? Uh, and again, she it may not even be that Wonder Woman gets pregnant. I mean, she could build her out of clay or something like that, or she could be adopted. We don't know. So I think that's kind of cool because then it skirts the whole DC having to like get feel touchy about, oh no, is Wonder Woman going to have sex? Is she going to get pregnant? No, we can't have that. Well, you don't have to because it's Wonder Woman of the future. It's a daughter of the future. And we may never see who the dad is or we may never get to that point. Now, of course, once they announced it, they said, oh, by the way, we're going to put uh, a special cover on Wonder Woman 800. So I had to get it with, you know, it features the character. I already bought a copy or pre-ordered a copy. Now I pre-ordered a second copy. Again, Tom King making me spend money. Ugh. That should be the name of a segment whenever I get to talking about his books. It should just be called Tom King Makes Me Spend Money Part 1. Tom King makes me spend more money, part two, because that is, you know, I remember early conversations of wanting to cut back on physical books, and this was might have even been before DC, you know, put out their app, and, and all I do is I just buy Tom King books, so anyway. All right, there you go. That is your comic news for this week. I am already compiling some news for the next Digest. Email me, peter at thedailyrios.com. Go visit the website. Go visit the Instagram, The Daily Rios. My Twitter is Peter J. Rios. Review me on your favorite podcast catcher. Send me some book club recommendations. Hopefully you heard the latest one with Stephen Orr on Murder Falcon. Don't forget, you can send me some promos. This has been The Daily Rios, episode 618 for Saturday, May 20th, 2023. Talk to you soon. He's going to wake up eventually. Well, that's exactly what I'm afraid of. She. What? The bear is a girl. Oh, yeah. How do you know that? Because its vagina is on my ear. <laughs> <laughs>